0: Your Bibles, please, for our second reading to the book of Exodus, chapter 27. Verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his firepans all the vessels thereof thou shalt make it of brass and thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof and thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath that the net may be even to the midst of the altar and thou shalt make staves for the altar staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle, For the south side southward, there shall be hangings for the court of fine twined linen of an hundred cubits long for one side. And the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for the north side in length, there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long. And... His 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10. And the breadth of the court on the east side, eastward shall be 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, their pillars three and their sockets three, and on the other side there shall be hangings of uh, hangings fifteen cubits. Their pillars three and their sockets three, and for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of twenty cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen, wrought with needlework. And their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. All the pillars round about the court. "...shall be filleted with silver, their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of brass. The length of the court shall be an hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twined linen, and their sockets of brass. All the vessels of the tabernacle, in all the service thereof, and all the pins thereof, and all the pins of the court, shall be of brass." And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamp to burn always. In the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on the behalf of the children of Israel." May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. There are three parts to this chapter. The first part speaks of the brazen altar. The second speaks of the the courtyard itself. And the third speaks of the olive oil for the light inside uh, the first chamber of the tabernacle for the menorah. So in the first section then, the altar of burnt offering. It is not of gold it is of brass this is what this is one of the first things we see made of brass why brass well let's keep in mind what brass is children you may not you may you may not know this i am not a metallurgist but i do know a little bit about metals and sometimes what you'll see on board a ship for things that need to be durable on the outside of a ship on the deck of a ship and so on those items will be made of brass and the reason is because brass is a mixture, generally of three metals in various levels. Sometimes more, sometimes uh, at least three, but sometimes more than that. Especially as modern metal- me- metallurgy has moved toward a, a you know a greater and a, a stronger metal. But in the ancient world, brass was made generally of three things: nickel, and iron, and copper. Remember that copper is malleable. Uh, it is. Um, it, it is very durable, however. Copper is something, you know, it, it does turn green when it oxidizes, but just the very surface of it, that oxidation very rarely breaks through and does what it does to iron, where it will just make it fall apart. And so if you mix iron and brass and nickel together, you get, I'm sorry, iron, copper, and nickel together, you get this brass that is heavy, durable, able to take the elements It's very hard. It's unyielding. Uh, Weapons were made of brass because they didn't bend. Okay? And so, brass is a fitting monument, a fitting metal for the unbending justice of God. And so, brass becomes the metal of judgment in Scripture. And so, whenever you see brass in Scripture, in visions, and so on, you ought to be thinking judgment. Very often we'll see in those pictures, those visions of Christ that we see, um, his feet are made of brass. Why are Christ's feet made of brass? Because he stamps out his enemy. Even in the Proto-Evangelium we see this, don't we? When the snake will nip at his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent with his feet of brass. So brass is the metal of judgment. It is a fitting metal for the, the altar. This is not an altar of incense, not an altar of prayers going up, but an altar of an of the smoke of a burning going up. And so it has what we call a network. We might call it a grill today, right? And I think probably we could say that with some certainty, that although it had four corners, it probably did not have four sides, only two sides with that network across. And so you could, you could shovel uh, fire in and out. You could add to the fire and you could take away ashes from either side of the, of the uh, brazen altar. It had those two sides and it had, it had staves and rings that ran through that were underneath the network and attached to it. And the network was somehow attached to those two sides. And if you know anything about building, you know that there were probably some cross pieces to keep it from cantilevering one way or the other. Canting one way or the other. Right? There were some, some angled bracing there. Uh, maybe that was handled in the network. We're not told. But we are told that Moses was to make it exactly. it was shown as it was shown to him in the mount, and that the, the brazen uh, network was in the midst. that is, it was between the two sides, but also it was down a little bit from the top. The top of that was, was three cubits, or uh, more than four and a half feet, nearly five feet high. And then uh, it was uh, five cubits square, four square. So about seven and a half feet or eight feet side to side. Why such a big altar? Because sometimes you put a bullock on it. It was large enough to hold that kind of animal, which would have been overnight reduced to ash as the smoke of that burning went up. So it is the metal of judgment and it speaks of judgment. It spoke of those sacrifices for trespass sacrifices for sin where those animals were brought there and burned it also spoke of dedication didn't it in that olah the whole burnt offering where the worshiper would be saying i am giving myself to god as a living sacrifice whole as i'm giving this animal this animal stands in my stead right and so on so it is the Metal of judgment. Remember that the fire of that altar was never supposed to go out. They were supposed to roll it up and take it with them in a smoldering mass whenever they traveled. Okay? So they never had to kindle that fire again. And they were told, weren't they, uh, not to kindle fire on the Sabbath day. Why were the Jews of old forbidden to kindle fire on the Sabbath day? Because that would have spoken of a false worship somewhere else other than at the altar. And Nadab and Abihu kindle other fire. They take strange or unauthorized fire to burn incense with. And the Lord, uh, immediately after he had kindled that fire on the altar, as the, as the altar and the tabernacle was first put into service, then they also died before the Lord for kindling strange fire. So that's the altar. And of course, that speaks of the sacrifice of Christ, that he gave himself wholly to God for our sins, right? And then others for whom the Lord Jesus has not satisfied the burning of their Ola, the burning of their sins, it'll go up forever and ever and ever. This is what John tells us in the book of Revelation, where the smoke of their burning goes up forever. Again, John is writing to a people that knew of a brazen altar and burnt sacrifice. But the fire of God's anger is propitiated for all those who trust Christ, right? It has been poured out already on him. The second thing that we see is the, the, the court itself. And the court is 100 cubits by 50 cubits. So it's twice as long, right? So it's western and eastern uh, facing are half of what the north and the south are. Remember that the tabernacle and its court was always set up that it opened toward the sun rising, toward the east. And so we have 100 cubits by 50 cubits um, roughly 150 or 160, maybe 165 feet by, you know, 75-80 feet, with a ratio of two to one. Those uh, those uh, curtains they were seven cubits tall, which is nearly you know uh, 11 feet tall, right? And the the posts that were put for those curtains to hang on. There were a certain number of them, 10 cubits apart, depending on which axis they were on. And then there was a 20 cubit gate facing the east. So 15 this way, 15 this way, and 20 in the middle. Moms, you want to teach your children addition, there's a really good way to do that. Show them uh, so a little bit of math from the Bible and how it all fits and makes sense. Show them division. Right? Here's 100, and we have, we have uh, 10 of those. How far apart are they? Here's, a, here's 50, and we have five of them. How far apart are they? Right? We can do that math, can't we? We can make that, we can, we, we can draw them into the scripture in so doing. But what's the purpose of the court? This is uh, something that folks have difficulty with. It is to separate The purpose of the court is to separate. It's to tell the world and the people of God you just don't get to come in here willy-nilly. There's a separation. God dwells in thick darkness, doesn't he? And yet he has come to tabernacle among his people. If we would remember who God is we would marvel that there's access to him at all. Instead of thinking about him like our like our our our, our buddy or, or some way of profanely drawing God down to our level, we would remember what great condescension is. <clears throat> and the and the court reminds us of that, doesn't it? The court reminds us that the approach to God must be uh, must be shepherded. It must be handled. Uh, I remember once uh, there was a baseball player. Most of you have heard of him. He's one of the most famous baseball players of all time. His name is Babe Ruth, George Herman Ruth. For a, for a very long time, hold, he held the, uh, the home runs and a season record, right? Uh, he was a legendary batter and a pitcher. And uh, <clears throat> he, uh, because of his notoriety, he was a bit of a proud man. And so the king of England came across the ocean to watch a baseball game. And Babe Ruth was introduced to the king. And he walked directly up to the king to shake his hand and said, Hiya, king. Oh, bad form. And we cringe when we think of something like that. And yet, beloved, let us remember that the approach to God would be infinitely more than the approach to a king. And so the the court reminds us of that. That we just don't waltz into God's presence with our thumbs and our lapels. Advertising our own worth or worthiness. No, whenever someone caught a glimpse of God in scripture, they were driven to their knees, sometimes to unconsciousness and often to despair of life. That's what the court reminds us of. That God is approachable. That he has appointed a place and a way to come to him through Christ. And then finally, the oil olive, the light Notice it is pure oil, olive, beaten fine. All of the impurities are brought out of it so that when it is put in the lamp and lit by the priest, there is no smoke of obscurity. It is the pure light that is symbolized there in the menorah. And we've already seen that the candlestick is, the, is a picture of the church and the light of the gospel and the doctrine of Christ that shines forth. And beloved, it cannot be obscured by smoke. It must be pure oil, the light of, of the word and spirit and that alone. And then having that, the light that shines forth will be the pure light of God's word, that pure doctrine of Christ. And remember also that it is to be ever lit Never to go out. And so we will bring up again what we brought up last week. And that is that when uh, the gospel is obscured, when false doctrine is taught, when practices creep into the church that are destructive to, to, the, to the Christian faith, rather than commanded by God, Jesus threatens to do what? Take away his light. Take away his candlestick. And so let us ever be vigilant then in prayer that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ would always shine forth not only from this place but from other places as well and that it would never be obscured by the darkness of error and sin. So that's Exodus chapter 27.